failure does not have to be final or fatal. And that's what the resurrection was all about. It was about Jesus kicking sin and death to the curb and rewriting the script of human history. That's what we celebrated with these baptisms. People that realized that in their life, the grace of Jesus Christ had moved them from failure to freedom. Now, I know it probably feels like a little bit of whiplash this weekend when we're going from baptism to failure. And so for those of you, there are probably many of you who were guests with us last weekend for Easter, and we want to welcome you back. And you're probably wondering what's going on, like why all of a sudden are we talking about failure? Let me catch you up to speed. We're continuing a series that we're in called Hashtag Fail, where we're looking at some of the most despicable characters and deplorable choices in all of Scripture. So we've looked at Adam and Eve in the garden. We've looked at Cain and Abel, the sibling rivalry of Jacob and Esau. We've gone into the belly of the whale with Jonah. We've, we've, we've watched Peter deny Jesus three times. And uh, so if you have your Bibles with you this weekend, you can go ahead and turn over to Acts 7. That's where we're going to camp out. Or if you've got a smartphone with you this weekend, you can pull up the YouVersion app and uh, go to Acts 7 in whatever translation you'd like to read in. Um, let me get you up to speed, too, with uh, where we are at in the story. So, um, so Jesus is uh, raised from the dead and tells his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples. And on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit blew down on the disciples. 3,000 people were saved and baptized in one day, and the church was born. People are getting healed, the poor being taken care of, and the gospel is just going out with all kinds of intensity. And then all of a sudden, the church kind of comes to this, this really bad moment. There's this, there's this sharp turn where things get a little rough. And a guy by the name of Stephen is brought before the high council of the chief priests and, and asked, why do you believe this stuff about Jesus? And eventually, um, Stephen is sentenced to death. And we pick up the story in Acts 7, the last part of verse 58. Is Stephen has been condemned to die. It says, his accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, we, we skip down to chapter 8. In verse 1, it says, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. And then from there, the, the text of the book of Acts kind of shifts scenes, and we start looking at Philip and all of his evangelistic activities. And so we'll get to the rest of Saul's story in a moment. But let me just stop for a moment. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how else to do this. So um, spoiler alert, Saul eventually comes over to the good side. Um, I don't know how else to do this, but, but Saul eventually, the guy who's hunting down the church, the guy who's throwing people into prison and arresting them and going after them to kill, he eventually becomes part of the church, not just part of the church, a leader in the church, a writer of much of the New Testament, and a guy that carries the gospel across the Roman Empire. And this particular story that we're about to look at is, is so important. It's kind of this, this hinge point in church history. And the writer of Acts, Luke, thinks it's so important that he actually records it three different times in the book of Acts. 
And so we see Saul's story in Acts 9, and then we're going to see it again in Acts 22 as Saul himself tells the story, and in Acts 26 when he tells his story to King Agrippa. And one of the things that we, we find out about uh, Saul is he, since he wrote much of the New Testament, and he tends to like to talk about himself a little bit, we actually know a good bit of his story. Um, we know him better probably as Paul. That was his Greek name. His Hebrew name was Saul. His, his Greek name was Paul, and, and that's how we know him. We also know that from Philippians 3, he says that he, is, um, he was circumcised on the, eighth day, uh, on the eighth day, which means his parents were very, very devout Jewish people. It says that he was a Hebrew, if there ever was one, that he was a full-blooded citizen of Israel. It says that he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, he was probably named Saul after King Saul, who was the most significant and influential person that had ever come from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, His training and education would have been extremely intense. At the age of five, he would have begun studying the Bible for himself. At the age of 10, he most likely moved to Jerusalem, where he was sitting under the education of a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel, who is is incredibly influential in Jewish history and still very well known today for his teachings. Um, in fact, Paul said that his, his education and his zeal went above and beyond of most that were his age. He was a member of a group of people in Judaism called the Pharisees, and they were known for very strict observance to the law. They, they wanted to, to attain righteousness through right living and very careful um, actions with the law. He would pray every day as a Pharisee. He would pray every day, blessed are you, Lord, for you have made me a Jew and not a Gentile, a free man and not a slave, a man and not a woman. He says that he was so zealous for his religion that he harshly persecuted the church and said it even says in, uh, in Acts 22 that he claimed to hound them to death. So we come back to his story in Acts 9. And in Acts 9, verse 1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest and requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation and the rest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now, I think it's, it's interesting to note that the, the journey from Jerusalem to Damascus was about 150 miles. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a lot by today's standards, but that would have been about a five-day journey for Paul. He was willing to go five days just to find these people who were followers of Jesus, arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem. He had so much zeal for his religion that he was completely blinded to everything that God was doing around him. Verse 3, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. If Saul's story is any indication, then grace has no end. If Saul's story is any indication, then God's grace has no end, has no limits to it. Let's just freeze frame this story for a moment because I think we see so much of God's character in it. 
Paul would go on later to say this, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem, authorized by the leading priest. I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. Thomas doubted Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. And Paul is trying to destroy any remnant of this man named Jesus. He's seeking out the followers of the way to silence them and to slaughter them. And then in the midst of his story, Jesus shows up. In the midst of his failure, Jesus just shows up. And I think the first thing that's interesting to see about this is that God initiates this. Grace always initiates in our lives. Paul is traveling 150 miles in the wrong direction when God shows up in the middle of his path. I mean, that's worse than me going 25 miles in the wrong direction to get to the Atlanta airport, which I've done before. I mean, Paul's going 150 miles in the wrong direction and God shows up because God initiates in the midst of our failure, grace. Now, I don't really feel comfortable with this sometimes. Because I like to think that, um, that I earn what I get, you know? Um, grace many times, or every time we see it coming from God, grace is not fair in the sense that we understand fairness because he just initiates. See, I like to earn things. I like to know that all of those Chuck E. Cheese tokens I got, I got because I earned them from A's on my report card, you know? I like to think that that T-ball trophy that I got and had sitting on my shelf as a six-year-old, I earned because I won, not just because I participated. I mean, I want to know that I have a master's degree in biological engineering because I can, or at least at one time, could solve differential equations, could design bioreactors, could mitigate wetlands. And I took dynamics not just once, but twice. We won't talk about that failure. That was probably supposed to be my Damascus Road moment to know I was going in the wrong direction. But fairness in God's economy isn't the way that we understand it. It doesn't always compute. In some ways, it's not logical and it's not fair because it's grace. Grace always initiates. We can't earn it. What's crazy is that Jesus is not fully fair and he's not fully logical. He is full of grace. When you think about the people that Matthew lists in his lineage, there are murderers and foreigners and adulterers and prostitutes and evil kings and swindlers and thieves. And then when you look at the people that Jesus hung out with when he was on earth, it was adulterers and prostitutes and thieves and swindlers and tax collectors and political revolutionaries. Jesus steps right into the middle of mess and says, my grace is going to be initiated here. So right in the middle of Paul's failure, Jesus steps in and initiates grace. The second thing we see is that he calls him by name. He calls Saul by name. Let's just think about this for a moment. God, most holy, almighty Maker of the universe, sustainer of the universe, redeemer of humanity, transcendent above all else, is still personal and knowable, and he knows your name. He knows your name, and he knows where you are. 
To Jacob, he said, I've called you by name and you are mine. I know you're probably saying, well, that's Jacob. He's like one of the, the big guys. He's one of the giants. Like, it's different. But in John 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And I know my sheep and they know my voice. Scripture says that even the very hairs on your head are numbered. I'm telling you this weekend, Jesus knows your name. He knows where you are. He knows what you need and he knows your name. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what brought you here today. Nothing is too big. Nothing is too far from God's grace. And what's really cool about this too is that Paul responds with, who are you? <laughs> I think it's okay to ask God who he is. I think it's okay for us to ask God to reveal himself. That's not unbelief. I, I believe that doubt and questions can make us run closer to Jesus. I think it's okay for us to ask him, who are you? I think it's okay to not have everything figured out. I think faith is a lot more about asking the right questions to the right person than it is about having all of the right answers. He knows your name. And I think that we can give voice to our questions and our doubts as long as we address them to God and not against God. So grace initiates. Grace called him by name. And the next thing that we see is that grace leads with questions. Why are you persecuting me? Now, Paul is out killing Christians. He is trying to put a period on the history of the church. He's trying to silence all of these people that are taking the good news about Jesus around the empire. And if I were God, I probably would have shown up, showed up and, and said something a little bit different. Like, Saul, sit down and shut up. I mean, like, Saul, you are an idiot. Like, stop it. And yet, God comes not with condemnation, but with a question. Why are you persecuting me? This is the way God tends to operate. If we think all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve have fallen. I mean, this is big time fail. And God shows up in the garden and just says, Adam, where are you? To the woman at the well who had had five husbands and was currently living with a man that was not her husband, Jesus says, hey, can I have a drink of water? Peter, after he's denied Jesus three times, Jesus comes to him and says, Peter, do you love me? Grace leads with questions, not with condemnation, with questions that invite in to a conversation. See, I think a lot of times religion doesn't leave room for doubts and for questions and conversations. Religion just hands you a list of statements and says, believe these. And hands you a list of rules and says, follow these. But Jesus says, let's talk. Let's have a relationship. Bring your questions and your doubts and your concerns and your worries to me. Grace leads with questions. The other thing we see is that grace extends invitations. So Paul is literally knocked off his horse. Paul was not looking for grace. Grace found him. Grace knocked him off his horse. And then God says, okay, get up, go into Damascus, and I'm going to give you instructions when you're there. And uh, we learn pretty quickly that God has chosen him to take the gospel to the non-Jewish or the Gentile world. Um, 
Paul has been given an invitation into a life that was much bigger and greater than anything he could have imagined. Grace says, come as you are, but then says, go out into a new life, into a new reality, into a new adventure. I mean, when we think about the woman who was caught in adultery, Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You're freed to a new way of living. To the woman at the well, she becomes the evangelist to the Samaritans. To Peter, he actually becomes the rock upon which God would, Jesus would build his church. On the other side of failure is an invitation to a brand new way of life. I think a lot of times we think that we have to change our identity in order to experience grace. We think we have to practice certain things in order to experience grace. But we have it backwards. We aren't given grace because we've exhibited good behavior. Grace exists for the very reason that we don't have good behavior. But grace changes the way that we want to live. When we come face to face with God's grace, something in us changes. I mean, I think about the time that I was six years old. I was sitting on the front row of a, a church service. It was a Sunday night, and I was bored, and we had a guest preacher, and I decided it would be really funny to imitate his preaching along with him. <laughs> and somehow forgetting that my dad sat on, like, the front row of the balcony and could see all of this happening. And the reason I wasn't with my family, we had children's choir had sung earlier that night, and so I'm sitting there. And the next thing I know, my dad is down on the front row on the aisle over, and I realize at that point my life is over. And that night, Dad takes me home, and, and we have this long conversation about it. And I will never, ever forget the moment he says, Heather, I'm not going to punish you for this. I want you to experience grace. And I learned something about God the Father that night that I have never, ever forgotten. Now, there are absolutely times that my father also taught me about the justice of God and, <laughs> and the inevitable consequences of sin, but I will never... <laughs> Forget the grace of God in that moment. And I go back to that all the time to think, you know what? I've got to live a life worthy of the calling that I've been given. One of my favorite stories about grace involves my friend Megan. And Megan gave me permission to share this story. When she first came on staff with us, she was working as an admin assistant. And part of her portfolio was working with Pastor Mark on his bulk book orders. And so routinely she would get these very large orders in for massive amounts of books to be shipped out to small groups or to organizations or even entire churches who were going to do a series. And so one day she gets an email in ordering uh, what she read to be 22 cases of books, normal order. She gets the paperwork done. She gets the boxes of books ships, shipped out. And about a week later got a really curious email from the recipient thanking her for all the extra books she had sent. So she goes back to the email and realizes that the email had asked for 22 books. Not cases. So just a few weeks into this job, she's doing the math in her head. She's thinking 22 cases times 24 books, 528 books minus 22 books, 506 extra books. So she's got to go talk to Pastor Mark. She goes into his office, and uh, she's just, again, a few weeks in this job, and so she's fully prepared to be fired or to have to pay for all of this out of her next paycheck, and, uh, or next several paychecks. And 
she, uh, she tells Pastor Mark what happened, and he said, ah. Oh. And his, and his, you know, that, that grin that he has, he says, ah, oh, it's okay. She said, no, 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 you don't understand. They ordered 22 books, and I sent them 22 cases. And he said, I, I know, it's, it's all good, it's okay. She saw a picture of Grace that day that changed the way she related to him as a boss, as a friend, as a pastor, and changed the way she went about her normal, everyday, walking around life, ministry, and job. Because when we experience grace, we cannot help but be changed. We can't stay the same. Because we've experienced something that invites us into a new way of living, that invites us into a new life. And so Paul is knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus. And he's invited into this new way of living. And and what's crazy is is he's he's struck by this light and he's blinded for three days. Now, I don't think that Paul's blindness was, this is my opinion, I don't think that the blindness he experienced was punishment for his failure. I just believe that the blindness was the result of the raw, unfiltered power of God coming face-to-face with our humanity. And when that happens, something is going to give. And when the raw, unfiltered power of God came face-to-face with Paul's humanity, his sight gave. And then, and, 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 and what happens is that this physical blindness overcame this spiritual blindness so that he was then able to see more clearly the gospel. I think those three days sitting in Damascus, blinded, waiting for whatever was next, just invited Paul deeper into a relationship with Jesus. And then this man named Ananias shows up, takes him under his wing, takes him into his care, feeds him, prays for him. Paul is healed. He's baptized. Later, he goes to Jerusalem where the apostles are a little freaked out. So Barnabas comes alongside and vouches for him. And then Paul eventually starts taking the gospel around the known world. 16 chapters of the book of Acts concentrate on his missionary efforts. This man who was willing to walk 150 miles to silence and slaughter followers of the way, followers of Jesus, found himself walking in his first missionary journey 1,581 miles to take the gospel to the world. In his second missionary journey, 3,000 miles. In the third missionary journey, 3,300 miles. And on his journey to Rome... 2,344 miles where he would join the martyrs, many of whom he had persecuted himself. Failure doesn't have to be final or fatal. When we experience God's grace, when God's grace intersects our lives, everything changes. One-third of the New Testament is either written about or written by Paul. Some of the greatest theological discoveries in church history have come about from the study of his writings, original sin or justification by faith or the sovereignty of God. The reason that many of us are right here today is because Paul took the gospel of Jesus and made it a faith that went beyond the culture of Judaism. He took Jesus to the Gentile or non-Jewish world. This man who once prayed, blessed are you, Lord, that you have made me Jew and not Gentile, a free man and not a slave, a man and not a woman, would later write, there is no longer Jew and Greek, 
There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ. The man who once thanked God that he was neither a Gentile or a, a, a slave or a woman is now preaching for radical reconciliation and countercultural and counterintuitive community. This is the change that the grace of God brings to our lives. He would later refer to himself as the least of all apostles. In fact, he would say, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. But then he, when he wrote to the church in Galatia, he said, and yet when they heard my story, they rejoiced because of me. What's crazy is that the grace of God did not just change Paul. It changed the people that Paul encountered. If Saul's story is any indication, grace has no end. If my failure is any indication, grace has no end. It is the pro- our failure is the proving grounds for God's grace. In one of Paul's letters, he later reflected on his relationship with Jesus and he said, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I'm the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul says, look, I don't care what you've done or how far you have gone. God's grace can find you. Paul's saying, look at me. I was trying to destroy Jesus. I was trying to destroy his teaching. I was trying to destroy his followers. Grace found me. Grace initiated in my life and called me my name and asked me into relationship and activated a brand new life for me. I don't care how big your sin is. God's grace is bigger. I don't care to what depths you have fallen in your failure. God's grace is stronger. You might say, but but Heather, you just really, you really don't understand what I've done or how far I've gone. I might not understand your story, but I do know what Jesus says. And he says that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. That means that however big, bold, brazen your failure has been, God's grace is stronger. There's just really no way to outsin the grace of God. The bucket never runs dry. If, if, if grace had its limits, then David would have found them. If grace had had its limits, then the people of God in the Old Testament would have found them in the Exodus or in the era of the judges or in the era of the kings or in the exile. If grace had limits, then Peter would have found them. If grace had had limits, then Paul would have found them. If grace had limits, I would have already found them over and over and over and over again. The cross and the resurrection are not just events that we should celebrate and remember one time a year. It should be the reality that we live in because the cross is where Jesus paid for our failure and the resurrection is where he freed us from failure. 
And that's the place that we're invited into today. We're invited into this place of grace. And what Paul would write is that the beauty of all of this is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. When we were at our absolute worst, grace initiated a work in our lives. Now, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. Because grace is not really logical. It's not really fair. It's grace. And in just a moment, our our band is going to come back up across all of our locations. And and I want to encourage you to do a couple of things. I want you to just meditate on the grace of God. You can't compute it. You can't understand it. You have to experience it. Grace is much better experienced than explained. And all across our locations, I believe that there are are many of us that have walked in today with places in our lives of shame and regret that we need the grace of God to come flooding into where we need to experience his forgiveness and his freedom. Not just so we've got some warm, fuzzy experience and feeling of God's forgiveness, but so we can be released to a new way of living. And the second thing is some of you are are here this weekend and you need to respond to his grace for the first time. And we're so excited you're here. And, And I think that your being here is proof that God is trying to show up right in the middle of your journey to stop you right in your tracks and say, hey, I know you, I know your name, I know where you go, I know how far you've gone, I know what you've done. My grace is bigger. And if you're here this weekend and that's you, the most spiritual thing, you know what, the most spiritual thing you could probably do this weekend if you're in that place is to send an email to baptism at theaterchurch.com We just saw all these stories of people who have experienced the grace of God setting them free. We've got another one coming up in a couple of months at the end of June. And that's a way you can respond. Have the same story that Paul had. Is God just reroutes his journey. And he's baptized and then he's set out on this new adventure with God. Failure does not have to be final or fatal. In fact, I would say if you're here and you're breathing, then whatever failure you've experienced is not final or fatal. God's grace is beyond your words and your imagination. You can't compute it. You can't make sense of it. You can't understand it. You have to experience it. In God's grace, the possibilities are endless. And your failure can become the proving grounds of God's grace. Father, I thank you so much today for your grace. God, words just cannot do justice to who you are and what you've done in our lives and what you bring to us. God, I pray today that you would just help us understand that we can't make sense of this. We can't earn our way into your good graces, that we don't get grace because of good behavior. God, that we are completely at your mercy and your strength and your goodness and your faithfulness. God, I pray that you would reroute us. God, that you would forgive us and free us into a new way of living that's so much bigger and better than anything we could have imagined. 
God, I pray today that you would show up in the midst of our failures and let your grace take center stage to show up, to show off. God, that we might be new people in you. In Jesus' name, amen.